Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When you think of a great leader of people, who comes to your mind? What qualities would you say are necessary in order for someone to be a great leader? What does our world teach us about great leaders? And what qualities do we personally desire to see in our leaders? You can take whole courses and get advanced degrees in in all sorts of things about management and leadership from any number of schools or universities, all all guaranteeing you to teach what truly makes a great and competent leader. The other thing we can do is also look back over time and see what makes a great leader in history. And, And several people in history, I notice, are conveniently named the great. So there's Alexander the Great, Catherine the Great, Charles the Great, also known as Charlemagne, and of course many others. There are even several historical figures in the Bible that also assume this name great. Nebuchadnezzar the Great, Cyrus the Great, and of course Herod the Great. So again, what makes a leader great? Is it the accumulation of great wealth or securing great military victories? How about providing a stable government or introducing legal reforms or perhaps completing massive building projects? These are some of the things that the people that we mentioned just a moment ago make them great in the eyes of the world. But is the same true in the eyes of God? Moses was born during the reign of one of these great historical leaders, the the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, many people, biblical scholars, have formulated different arguments for which Pharaoh in history they supposed this to be, the one from the book of Exodus. But the book of Exodus doesn't actually say, and, and so that says something right there, that despite the supposed greatness of Pharaoh, well, God doesn't even deem it necessary for us to know his name. But regardless, historians consider this a great era for Egypt. There was strong infrastructure, massive armies, expensive building projects. Of course, much of it was done on the backs of slave labor, including on the backs of the Hebrew people, God's people in Egypt. The Hebrews weren't always slaves in Egypt. In fact, the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they came to Egypt when Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, was second in command. And they were quite literally saved in Egypt during a time of of great famine. God preserved Jacob's family, 70 persons in all, by them coming to Egypt. And so times were good. That is, until they weren't. It was about 400 years after Joseph that Jacob's family had grown by leaps and bounds from 70 persons to millions of persons. And so the new Pharaoh, which did not remember Joseph, feared this nation of people living within his borders. And so he began to treat them harshly in order to subdue them, to enslave them. So harshly, in fact, that this great king decided that slavery wasn't enough. And he commanded that every male child born to the Hebrews should be cast into the Nile. And so this is the time into which Moses was born. 
And in the first chapters of Exodus, you begin to see a contrast between two leaders. You have the great and mighty Pharaoh, who by many accounts was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And then you have Moses, a small child whose mother could not hide him from Pharaoh any longer. And so at three months old, she placed Moses in the reeds of the riverbank with nothing but a basket covered in pitch to protect him. The great and powerful versus the weak and lowly. So what happens? Who prevails? Well, despite the supposed greatness of Pharaoh, Moses survived. In fact, Moses not only survived, but he did so within the house of Pharaoh himself. The daughter of Pharaoh drew Moses out of the water and raised him with the help of his sister and mother. And Moses, the child, would grow to become the one who would rescue his people. But you see, it wasn't Moses who was doing all of this. Moses didn't survive and then grow up to to lead and save his people on his own accord. There was one who was guiding and directing this plan all along. The one who had always been faithful to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all their descendants. The God of Israel. In fact, Moses didn't grow up to be all that spectacular in and of himself. Which, which seems like a crazy thing to say when you, when you read through the scriptures and see that all the things Moses did as the leader of the people. But again, it wasn't Moses who was accomplishing all of those things. It was God through Moses. Moses so often focused on all of his weaknesses. He couldn't speak well. He couldn't lead well. He couldn't delegate responsibility well. But he had God's help. And so through Moses, God did extraordinary things. God was the one who sent the plagues on Egypt to free his people God led his people through the Red Sea onto the dry ground. God gave Moses the words to say and the actions to accomplish. God did it all through Moses so that Moses could rescue his people out of slavery and deliver them into the new life waiting for them in the promised land. And we can look back over all of Moses' life, including his, his childhood, and we see that despite the outward appearances of weakness and lowliness, despite the fantastically small odds of any success, especially when you compare it to the, the supposed greatness of a great leader like Pharaoh, that it was God who prevailed all along. God is the great leader who uses even weakness and lowliness in others for his purposes, his purposes of rescue and salvation for his people. Well, fast forward almost a millennium and a half, and you see some of these same things begin to take place, which was not a coincidence in God's plan. Things that would connect a new child of hope to the previous child of hope. A child who, in God's plan, was going up against yet another great leader, or at least a leader who called himself great. This time, Herod the Great. 
Again, in the world's eyes, there seems to be no dispute over Herod's greatness. What Herod maneuvered, politically speaking, for himself as the king of Judea was nothing short of impressive. He negotiated semi-autonomy from the Romans, paying lip service to Caesar, while at the same time being able to seek ways to make his own legacy great. And he did that by, by making impressive cities and, and structures and, and building projects. Of course, as you may know, Herod was incredibly paranoid. He was so, so zealous for his throne that he held for 40 years that he killed anyone that could have possibly been a threat to his throne, including his own wife and a few of his own sons. Such is the price, Herod would argue, for greatness. But just like in Exodus... The beginning chapters of Matthew's gospel portray a contrast of two leaders. On one hand, you have Herod the Great, and on the other hand, you have Jesus born in Bethlehem. And just like with Pharaoh, when Herod learned of a potential threat to his throne, he decided to kill all the male children in Bethlehem. Herod was the great one, not Jesus, and so he was going to do everything in his power to ensure that it stayed that way. And Jesus, just like Moses, was helpless. He was just a child. He was born to common parents. He was born in the most lowly of situations. He had nothing in the world at all that the world would look at and consider great. He had no station. He had no protection. He had nothing except that he was the true child of hope. Jesus was God, the Son of God who came as a child to rescue his people. But for now, his physical life was entrusted to another, just as Moses' life was entrusted to his family and to the daughter of Pharaoh. And so being warned in a dream about Herod, Joseph and Mary fled. And do you remember where they fled? They fled to Egypt. In God's saving wisdom, he sent his son, his only son, To go to the same place where he had rescued the sons of Israel so long ago. So that, as Matthew's gospel tells us, that out of Egypt, he might once again call his son. All the plans and all the maneuverings and all the raging of the presumed great king Herod, they came to nothing. Meanwhile, the plans of God to save the whole world, could not be stopped. And so for the second time, two great leaders, one great and powerful and the other weak and lowly, went head to head against each other. And it was God who chose to demonstrate his ultimate and eternal kingship by working through that which appeared weak and lowly in order to accomplish his purposes. His purposes of rescue and salvation for his people. Joseph was told that this son would be called Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because Jesus will save his people from their sins. Think about that. Jesus was born as the child who was going to rescue his people. And God told Joseph what we needed rescuing from. Not a leader, not a king or a kingdom something much more powerful than any of those. Jesus came to rescue us from sin. 
and the consequences of sin, which is death. God knew that we needed saving not only for life in this world, but also, and most importantly, life in the world to come. And to do that, Jesus would need to go toe-to-toe with the power of sin and death itself. So that's why I asked you earlier what you think of when you think of a great leader and what this world usually thinks of. Because Jesus did come to rescue his people, but so many people in his day and so many people in ours allow their own preconceived notions of what makes a leader great to influence. They allow it to influence their judgment of Jesus. He doesn't look like the Savior I was expecting. He's not behaving in the way I would expect him to behave. He doesn't associate with great people that I would assume that he would associate with. He's not accomplishing great things that I would assume and want him to accomplish. So many people back in his day assumed they knew what a great leader, a great savior should look like. That they missed Jesus entirely. And when Jesus journeyed to the ultimate place of weakness and lowliness, when Jesus journeyed to the cross... They asked, how could a great leader, a Messiah, a Savior, who's supposed to be rescuing his people, allow himself to die like this? And so many people were scandalized by it all. But you see, this is exactly what God had been preparing them for all along. Ever since Moses and so many other instances in the Bible, that God chooses not to work in ways that look impressive and mighty and powerful in the eyes of the world. No, God chooses that which is weak and lowly to shame the powerful and the so-called wise. So that no one could possibly confuse the truly great things that God does with anything that we as human beings can do. And so it was through the cross that nothing less than the salvation of the entire world was accomplished. Every single sin of every single human being was paid for at the cross. And at the cross, Jesus was leading a new exodus, a greater exodus. Rescue not from physical slavery, but rescue from our eternal slavery to sin. And deliverance of life and salvation, not into a new earthly kingdom, but deliverance of eternal life and salvation into the kingdom of the resurrection that has no end. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are God's people who have been delivered by Jesus. We know the great victory and rescue plan that he has already accomplished for us. And yet we also find ourselves in a time of waiting. And that's what this Advent season reminds us, that that as God's people waited for Jesus' first Advent, so we, as God's people, are also waiting for his second Advent. And so during this time, during our lives, we see all the things that our world continues to think are great, great leaders, great wealth, great success, great satisfaction, but all by worldly and fleeting standards. 
And what's more, we know that we of ourselves are not great. We are truly weak and lowly. Without God's intervention, we are eternally vulnerable to our enemies of of sin and death and the devil. The, The world looks at us, the church, and we may even look at ourselves in the mirror and we see nothing that any person would call great. And yet... This night we are reminded once again that God doesn't work through things that appear great and powerful. Instead, he chooses to work through things that might appear weak and lowly. And he even works through and in poor, miserable sinners like you and like me. And God has worked the greatest and most powerful work through his son, Jesus Christ, That through Jesus we are forgiven of all of our sins. We are given new life that never fades. We are granted the, the love of God which nothing, no enemy, no power, nothing in all creation can ever separate us from him. And on that day that we are currently waiting for, on that day we will see with our own eyes our Savior who will return not in lowliness but in his great glory. He is the one, we will say, on that day. He is the one who has indeed rescued all his people. In his name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.